0: Welcome to the three martini lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three martinis coming up.
1: Really glad you're with us to start out the week. Good, bad, crazy martinis for conservatives today. All of them based on reporting from Politico, actually. Jim, the first story we're looking at from Politico is the story of a special election in Louisiana's 5th Congressional District over the weekend. This is the seat that was won by Luke Letlow. Uh, Originally back in uh, November, he was the top vote getter, had to go to a runoff, easily won the runoff. And then shortly thereafter, he contracted COVID, developed a number of complications and died, a fairly young guy in his early 40s. Uh, So then a scramble to replace him. But it was pretty clear early on who the party wanted, and that was his widow, Julia Letlow, in a 12-way race. She took 62 percent of the vote on Saturday. Uh, She had a Trump endorsement. The party pretty much rallied around her. Everybody else was kind of an also-ran. She's pretty impressive in her own right. Ph.D. in communication from the University of South Florida, works as an executive at the University of Louisiana-Monroe, a mother of pretty young kids, and she just lost her husband. She made him an issue in the campaign. Uh, The quote from her spot here says, While losing Luke has been devastating, I know that two things can be true at the same time. A person can be full of grief while still having hope for the future. And so... She's promised to be a conservative when it comes to values, protecting unborn children and the right to bear arms. It's a it's a highly Republican district, Uh, Jim. This is not a a big surprise, but it's good to know that uh, she's won convincingly. Uh, Hopefully she'll be a good member of Congress and uh, the legacy of her husband's good work continues here as well.
0: Yeah, like you know, I mean, the the good news is not look, not necessarily that a Republican won in this district. It's not very shocking. It's a pretty darn Republican district, but we've seen this happen before. And nothing against the you know fine widows of the world, but sometimes when the widow of a deceased member of Congress or deceased senator or governor runs it's sort of a placeholder it's it's almost going on name recognition it's going on public sympathy uh and you have a figure in office who would not probably be in that seat if not for these circumstances now look this was somebody who was a finalist to be uh university president university of louisiana at monroe by, you know, almost just about every measure you can think of, Julia Letlow is perfect, not only just you know legally qualified to be a member of Congress, but a really strong figure to be a member of Congress and may well be in the House for many years and may do not just a good job of representing this district, but you could conceivably see her being a leader in Congress, particularly on issues where she spent her career in on higher education. And Lord knows we could use some good federal legislation on higher education because there's a lot wrong with it. Kind of a, a nice little pleasant surprise out of a really unfortunate Set of circumstances. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what Julia Letlow does when she arrives in the House. And again, one more addition of, you know, the, the class of 2020 of, of House Republicans. Uh, a lot of minorities, a lot of women, a lot of veterans. And this is just kind of one more that will kind of fit into that category and is probably worth watching in the, in the months and years to come.
1: I am never going to run for office, but Mrs. Corumbus when we were dating, made me promise to never run for anything. And so I fully intend to, uh, to keep that <laughs> promise, Jim. So uh, regardless of how things shake out, I don't know if uh, in the Garrity household such promises have been made, but uh, I will not be seeking official office. I'm I
0: fairly time. certain my wife knows I'd never get elected to anything. So I never <laughs> had to make
1: that promise <laughs> Especially now, we're way too politically incorrect. We were probably that before, but uh, we also live in Northern Virginia.
0: Let's go to the, so (laughs) Mr. (laughs) Candidate Garrity, are you sure Disney really has a CTU unit like that? And is it a pro, do you support goofy waterboarding uh, suspects that way?
1: yes is the answer uh keep in mind though that we'd be running in northern virginia <laughs> and so our, uh, our our share of the vote would not be very <laughs> high for anything uh involving uh local or uh, statewide politics in virginia i'm pretty sure at this point uh let's talk about uh, our great sponsor today ladder insurance Look, life is fragile. We see it in this story. We see it in a lot of different stories from uh, throughout the past year, especially with the pandemic. And you absolutely want to make sure that your family is going to be taken care of if the unfortunate happens. And so it makes sense to get life insurance, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. If you haven't looked into it, it really is affordable. So why not pay a little bit each month to protect the ones you love? If you're asking yourself this question, you really want to take a look at Ladder.
0: Ladder makes it impressively fast and easy to get covered. You just need a few minutes and a phone or laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you're approved. There are no hidden fees, and you can cancel any time. And since life insurance costs more as you age, now is the time
1: to cross it off your list. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. Go to LadderLife.com martini. That's L-A-D-D-E-R Life.com martini. LadderLife.com martini. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. The Democrats, unfortunately, have more than one way to skin the cat of getting around the 60 vote threshold that has traditionally, at least in recent tradition, been the way you have to get to pass legislation in the U.S. Senate. You need 60 votes to cut off debate and then a simple majority on the final vote on an issue. But there's talk now of watering down the filibuster, make it a real talk at which point you still have the vote at the end, other different machinations of that. Uh, The other tool that we've seen already used uh, in this current setup is reconciliation. Now, the Republicans used this back in 2017 to try and repeal Obamacare. They still failed, uh, but they did use it to get through uh, the tax cut reform bill at the end of 2017. But reconciliation only gives you a certain window of opportunity to get this stuff done. And the Democrats plan to use it heartily. Politico. Less than two weeks after President Joe Biden signed into law one of Congress's most expansive measures in decades, House Democratic leaders are already dreaming bigger. With most items on their agenda hobbled by the Senate filibuster, top House Democrats are eyeing ways to muscle through drug pricing and climate policy goals using the same arcane budget process that let the party bypass GOP votes for its pandemic aid bill. Sweeping immigration bills are also on the wish list for many members, with Democrats eager to fit what they can in Biden's next high-profile package, which could be the party's last shot at using the budget tool before the midterm elections. House Budget Committee Chairman John Yarmouth saying, It's going to be a kitchen sink. Virtually everyone's going to want to get their priorities done through reconciliation. We'll see what we can accommodate. So, Jim... It's omnibus everywhere. We're going to figure out a way to make sure that the rights of the minority in the Senate don't matter. And so by hook or by crook, they're going to try to jam all of this through. This is obviously very bad news. It forces you, if the Democrats get away with this on a parliamentary basis, to win at least one vote among Democrats in the Senate, which is not something I'm confident we can do on a lot of these issues. So where do we stand?
0: Yeah, so you begin to realize just how much the power of the minority in the Senate has been dependent upon the majority deciding to recognize the minority's right to block certain things. Um, That once you've decided, well, we're gonna hammer this through 50 votes, uh, vice president breaking the tie, that's all we need. Uh, it's interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I was hearing, actually, not a couple, let's say less than a week ago, I was hearing from a, uh, a good GOP Capitol Hill source who was talking about the infrastructure bill. And they said that, look, Democrats have been saying, oh, we want to do stuff regular order. Like, clearly, the Democratic message is we want to do regular order until we can't get what we want. And then when we can't, we're going to go try to do it through reconciliation. His understanding of the rules was that if you want to use reconciliation, you need a fiscal year 22 budget resolution passed under regular order, which you then use reconciliation to deploy. Basically, you're adjusting the budget that you pass through the normal process. And his argument is, okay, well, the GOP just won't sign off on the budget resolution. That'll be able to block things, or they can play hardball on a debt ceiling increase, you know, filibustering them, and that could give the Republicans some sort of uh, leverage in this process. And I, I, it sounded good on paper, Greg, but then you think through if you have the votes to pass through what we just saw with the COVID relief bill, party line votes and a 51 to 50 vote in the Senate, or in the case of that COVID relief bill, it was 50 votes to 49 because one Republican didn't vote. Um, Well, then you can do that for a budget resolution as well. Um, And in fact, by the way, budget resolutions cannot be stalled in the Senate by a filibuster and it doesn't need the president's signature. So by that standard, House Republicans and Senate Republicans, despite having 50 votes in the Senate and despite having all you know like five votes short in the in the House, have no leverage over this process. And that theoretically, the Democrats could try to invoke um, uh, reconciliation on every major priority they have this year. The problem is that this is just that would turn into another way of effectively doing away with the filibuster. If you pass, I guess the only effective veto that Republicans would have would come in the form of the Senate parliamentarian. Uh, who, again, as you may recall from the COVID relief bill, wouldn't allow the $15 an hour minimum wage increase to go through because it couldn't justifiably be argued as an adjustment to the federal government. So using reconciliation might tweak uh, that Democratic priority list a little bit. They wouldn't get everything, but they would get a lot of what they wanted. And the Republican leverage for this is pretty darn low, other than to say, kind of as, as Mitch McConnell had said with the threat of the repealing the uh, filibuster either in part or entirely. Once you, we're back in the majority, we're going to make you guys pay and we're going to ram through every single item we like on, through with 50 votes or 51 votes, and there's going to be a darn thing you guys can do about it and you'll regret it the same way you live to regret what you did on judicial nominations. Maybe that will deter a couple of them. I don't know. But the other thing which I think we should be very nervous about is that the Joe Manchins and Kirsten Cinemas of the world who have said they don't want to get rid of the filibuster – might not be nearly as opposed to saying, hey, let's just do everything the reconciliation and using that as a workaround to basically make the filibuster
1: toothless because it can't be applied to bills that are coming through with reconciliation. And then you can tacitly claim that you never voted to kill the filibuster, I guess. Uh, in Washington, that supposedly counts as keeping your promise, I guess. It's going to be ugly. So get some rest, Republicans. It's going to be a long stretch here uh, as this uh, reconciliation effort continues on a number of issues where Democrats want to do Terrible, terrible things. And as long as you're doing that, you might as well grab some stuff from My Pillow. <laughs> if you're if you're gonna need the rest and the energy uh, for the for the fights to come. But My Pillow is more than just a fantastic pillow because they give the same attention they've given their pillows to their towels and sheets. And right now, three Martini Lunch listeners can buy one and get one free on all six-piece towel sets and the Giza Dream Sheet sets.
0: My pillow towels have proprietary technology that makes them highly absorbent. They're soft to the touch without that lotion-y feel. They have a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. They're washable, they're dryable, and they have seven colors to choose from.
1: I just tried the towels for the first time today, and you are correct, Jim. They are highly absorbent and soft to the touch. Very good stuff. The MyPillow Giza Dreams bedsheets are made with the world's best cotton. The sateen weave gives them a luxurious finish and will have you sleeping like a dream. Also, a 10-year warranty and 60-day money-back guarantee, washable and dryable to stay healthy, wide variety of colors and sizes so visit mypillow.com and right now for our listeners at three martini lunch all six-piece towel sets and giza sheets are buy one get one free use the promo code martini at checkout or call 800-874-0104 that's mypillow.com code martini or call 800-874-0104 for buy one get one free on all six-piece towel sets and the giza dream sheets All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now, and you have certainly had frustrations over time with the rollout of vaccines in various states and uh, just how the Biden administration has handled the uh, overall distribution of the vaccine. We are seeing better daily numbers now. I think we've uh, cleared three million recently. I think one day we even got over four million, but uh, there's still... A backlog here, and and today you're looking at the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. You write today in the corner, Politico reports that three weeks after the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine, 2.3 million of the 4.3 million doses of the vaccine delivered have actually been administered. That's an abysmally disappointing 53.4%. That's the phrase I'm using for my bracket after the first couple rounds here, Jim. Abysmally disappointing, (laughs) but it's far more significant when it comes to vaccine distribution. And you say, uh, much like the early weeks of the Moderna and Pfizer shots, no one is entirely sure what the holdup is. But as Politico reports, senior Biden administration officials have met privately to try and figure out what happened. Two senior administration officials believe states are conserving those supplies until there's enough to reach underserved communities and specific groups like teachers or the disabled. But multiple state officials say they're using whatever they get as soon as they get it. So, Jim, the idea of stockpiling is not one that's sitting well with you, I can tell.
0: No, no. So here's the thing. If you want to say, ah, you know, look at the the uh, numbers of vaccinations of actually getting it from the manufacturers into people's arms for the first month, uh, you know, under the Trump administration. ah, but you know, OK, well, look, it was the first month they were having a hard time. Uh, if you want to say, oh, the second month, once Biden took over, ah, there were all those, you know, the, the percentage that was ending up in people's arms, that was still low. OK, Biden and his team are coming in. They're getting up to speed. They didn't have the normal transition. OK, fine. Well, we're now three months in. You actually we're now like it's three months and a week into our vaccination process nobody's a rookie anymore nobody has no experience we've been doing this for three months there really shouldn't be these sorts of backlogs and and kind of clogs in the pipeline so to speak um by the way if you want to talk about our overall numbers of how many vaccines are getting from the manufacturers to the states and from the states into the distribution centers and then to people's arms uh, as of this morning, we've used 79 percent. That's basically where it's been over the last couple of weeks. It's gone as low as, you know, 74 um, percent. At one point in late February, we were up at 83.9 percent, almost 84 percent. Now, you want shots in people's arms. They're not doing anybody any good sitting on a shelf somewhere. Now, obviously, some of this is going to have some transportation costs. You're going to have people who make appointments and then don't show up. You're going to have extra doses and you run around trying to find people to get that. Like granted, you're going to have some mistakes. You're going to have some problems, but ideally you'd be getting them into arms as quickly as possible. And I talk in today's morning, jolt looking at which States are doing the best job, which States are doing the uh, worst job, but the Johnson and Johnson, that's the one shot one, one and done. Like once you, you don't have to worry about scheduling for another appointment three weeks from now or four weeks from now. And there's just no good reason to be sitting on this. And yet apparently, at least according to the Biden administration, um, they think states are conserving their Johnson and Johnson shots until there's enough to reach quote, underserved communities and specific groups like teachers or the disabled. Well, look, if you wanna get, you know, underserved communities to get the doses, you gotta use the doses. (laughs) If you're, you know, if you open up your vaccination appointments to teachers, open them up to the disabled, go figure out where they are and get it out to them. Operate your sites longer hours. Right? You know, you don't do any good by having that that uh, uh, dose sitting on the shelf. And in really worst case scenarios, I, I assume nothing be held on the shelf long enough to expire. But these things don't last forever. And it just seems like exceptionally poor planning. And it's one thing to have poor planning or these kinds of logistical snafus in the first month. It's maybe excusable in the second month, but it's really tough to excuse in the third month. And this is the third vaccine, and arguably this is the most important vaccine, because you know each one you get a shot in, boom, they're done. You don't have to worry about them anymore. Uh, deeply frustrating. It's the exact same problem three months in. This is much less excusable from where I'm sitting, and I just don't understand because from the very beginning, Fauci and the CDC, anybody who looks at this is going to point is going to tell you the same thing. A dose only does you good if it's in a person. Find needles. Find people who haven't been vaccinated yet, and start stabbing them with, with the needle. <laughs> I must emphasize: not, not, don't stab them in general. Yeah. Deeply frustrating. Um, we'll see if this improves, but uh, you know, fifty-three point, you know, just under fifty-four percent after three weeks. This is one of the two we had stockpiled in that warehouse in West Baltimore. The other one is the AstraZeneca one, which by the way, new results from the US trials for that one are in, and that one is 70 some percent effective. That one's just fine. Let's get moving on this FDA. We've got plenty of vaccines and we've got people who want vaccines, but the process is not going. Oh, by the way one last detail, which I just think is like just to kind of give you perspective of how amazing Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson have been so far. Um, They are expected by the end of this month, by the end of March, they will have manufactured 132 million doses. In February, they had 48 million doses. That's nearly triple. It's just an amazing job by these manufacturers. They are churning them out by an an unbelievable amount of speed, fantastic rate, exactly what we need in this pandemic. And the state governments just can't get into people's arms fast enough.
1: Wow. It's got to be kind of like whiplash for the Johnsons to be looking at other people and saying, why are you guys so disappointing?
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Yeah, just like with free agency. <laughs> it's a Jets joke, not a Johnson and Johnson joke. It's a Jets joke. Of course. Jim, have a great day. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, Please do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We're very grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday, and we'll see you again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Biden's denial on the border surge, $1,400 stimulus checks hitting people's bank accounts, and why is everyone so focused on canceling kids' cartoons? Hey, it's the Chicks from the Chicks on the Right podcast. Download and subscribe to our daily podcast to hear us pick apart and pick on the news of the day. Politics to pop culture, nobody's safe, but it's all fun. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.